Welcome to the Vertical Podcast. As usual, thanks for being here. I'm Jacques Cesaire. I've got a couple announcements to make. There is conflict developing more and more every day in Israel and Palestine. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I'm also trying to learn more so I can develop those thoughts. There will be another guest on the podcast soon, my friend Hunter. He is very familiar with the geopolitics of the region. We're going to be walking through the conflict, the history, the ethical repercussions of our intervention, and if that intervention is justified, and if so, how to go about it. We plan to talk about living conditions in the Gaza Strip and many other facets of this conflict. Some other news, and I was debating on sharing it on this podcast. I have not revealed much personally about me other than my philosophies, but I am engaged and very happy, very excited for the next uh, steps in my life with Desiree. We did it for a year and a half, and right now we're just working out the logistics of our future together. So very happy about that, very excited, and uh, she's really brilliant. I'm excited to see what she'll contribute to me and my intellectual adventures. Uh, She's awesome, so excited for that. I also plan on doing a book review of Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. It's sitting here on my desk. I have read it. It's almost 800 pages long. Certainly one of the most difficult books I've ever read. I'm not sure I'll be able to even cover one-tenth of what is in that book. But even though I'm still struggling with compacting what I learned in that book and consistently walking through it more and more to get everything I missed, I have to cover it, or at least attempt to. Something has to be done about this book. I I know that much for sure. Um, It's a brilliant work. I think he's not the best writer. When you need a slew of other authors to write walkthroughs and summaries of your book, it might just be that you didn't convey your book properly in the first place. I don't want to anger anyone, so I'll just leave it at that. Charles Taylor, Secular Age, we must go through that on this podcast. And I believe that does it for the announcements. Today I'll be covering Rosa Brooks, how everything became war and how the military became everything. And a little bit of history about this book. When I was 16 years old, I was quite a miserable kid and my parents would um, probably do anything to get me to shut up and uh, stay out of the way. And I was in a bookstore with my sister And I saw this book and another book, The Color of Law, displayed on the bestsellers or new releases shelf. And I was extremely interested in them. I obviously, at the age of 16, in the year 2016, had no political thoughts, no political affiliations, other than probably just agreeing or disagreeing with my parents. But I was always obsessed with the military, and I thought law enforcement was my calling in life. And both those books seem to be relevant. So I got both books. They were definitely out of my reading capacity at the age of 16. And Color of Law was nothing about police and all about redlining. And I'd certainly need to cover uh, Color of Law on this podcast. That is a very interesting book. I believe it tells us a lot about institutionalized racism and its lingering effects today. I obviously had no idea what redlining was at the age of 16. I was raised in South Texas, primarily conservative, Republican, and all of that was very new. 
So before I could develop a political lens to view the world, I knew one thing. Redlining had tangible effects today, and it was very real. But that is a discussion for another day. This book was the book I read first. And like I said, I had no political lens at the age of, I think it was 17 or 18 when I first uh, sat down and read this book. I had no political lens to view the world. And so you could give me either conservative or liberal ideologies without telling me uh, which way they fell on the political spectrum. And I would pick and choose from both far reaches of the spectrum, unbeknownst to me that that was strictly against the societal norms. This book, I believe, needs to be completely separated from our modern political spectrum and viewed just as a concrete objective analysis of how we approach the military and how we view war and our distance and proximity to it. I emailed Brooks, tried to get her on the podcast, and she was unavailable. So it's a bummer. I was pretty let down about that. But I believe it's a when, not if, for when I get a, a prominent author on this podcast to walk through their book. With that said, let's jump in. This is Rosa Brooks, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Brooks opens with the traditional attempt to get definitions and clarity on terms that'll be used throughout the book. And the interesting thing is part of defining these concepts is one of the primary problems that the book is alluding to. Terms like war itself, conflict, casualties, and enemy combatant, these take on new identities in our modern sphere of conflict. Conflicts in the past, identifying your enemy was rather easy. They wore a distinct uniform, had distinct badges and insignias, and a distinct flag. They were typically loyal to a nation as an entity. For example, the Nazis represented Germany. The Japanese army under Hirohito represented all of Japan. And the U.S. forces represented the United States. However, today, Hezbollah does not represent the people of Lebanon. Hamas does not represent the people of Palestine. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban do not represent the people of Afghanistan and Iraq. So how do you identify an enemy combatant? They're not all wearing the same uniform. Rather, they look like civilians of the nations they inhabit. And from a bird's eye view, how do you declare war on that? Do you declare war on the institution itself? It appears so. But what if loyalty to that institution lies on a spectrum, and different civilians of the nation may agree with some tenets, but will abstain from conflict? Do they count as enemy combatants? We saw Bush declare a war on terror. But terror is not a location. It's not a tribe. It's not an entity. It's not a country. It's not a faction. It's an act. Or an idea. So how do you declare war on that? When you capture a prisoner of war, those prisoners get released after the war. But if you're at war within an idea or an action, when will that conflict end? Will those prisoners ever get released? When does the war on terror end? On a more urban level, when does the war on drugs end? We must stop declaring war on ideas. Now, much of this book is written from Rosa's perspective from within the Pentagon, which is where she worked. So there's a lot of juicy inside details that Rosa is able to share. But a lot of these shocking stories arise from individuals within the Pentagon not able to agree on certain terms and ideas, an important one being the Geneva Conventions. How do we disagree on that? 
During the Iraq War, in a conversation in the Pentagon, an individual brought up the treatment of detainees at Guantanamo and said that they are violating the Geneva Conventions. Rosen notes how one individual stood up and said, well, the Geneva Conventions, well, those are complicated, aren't they? In a sector of our government that holds trillions and trillions of tax dollars, you would expect more, wouldn't you? Along with a lack of coherency and an inability to communicate appropriately, Rosa also notes that the Pentagon has a annual budget fluctuating around $500 billion. Now, one of the reasons the budget is around $500 billion is because the Pentagon is taking on so many tasks. And Brooks does a good job outlining a vicious cycle of sorts. The Pentagon takes on tasks that should be allocated or delegated to civilian and non-military, non-governmental entities. And the Pentagon takes them on, attempts to do them, does a subpar job as the Pentagon is primarily focused around defense and military. And because it does such a poor job, it needs more funding. I don't remember if I've mentioned it here before, but Vice, Vice News, used to have, uh, they still have it on YouTube. It's an incredible documentary called This Is What Winning Looks Like. This is back in a time when Vice was actually uh, worth listening to. And this documentary, I think it came out in 2014. It's a brilliant documentary. And it covers U.S. troops in Afghanistan training the Afghan military and police to be self-sufficient and self-sustainable after the U.S. departs. It's a painful documentary to watch because you're watching the military perform tasks and try to accomplish goals that are not within its wheelhouse. They are trying to establish a government there. The military is attempting to establish a government, a cohesive government that works together, a democracy of sorts. That's not the prerogative of the U.S. military. There are also scenes where they are teaching the Afghans about hygiene and cleanliness. There's solving civil and domestic disputes among the Afghan individuals. There's concerns about drugs and drug use. All of these things are typically not what you would look to the military to solve. Yet the budget of the military, which is in the trillions every year, goes to solving these problems. These would be solved for much less cost and a much greater efficiency if they were allocated to more appropriate departments in the U.S. government's arsenal. Brooks teaches us about the term for these kinds of jobs. They're called MUTWA, or military operations other than war. Brooks gives us some words of wisdom here. If your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The old adage applies here as well. If your only functioning government institution is the military, everything looks like a war. And when everything looks like a war, everything looks like a military mission. Brooks writes, Asking the military to take on more and more non-traditional tasks requires exhausting our all-volunteer military force and necessitates higher military budgets. Higher military budgets force us to look for savings elsewhere, so we freeze or cut spending on civilian diplomacy and development and domestic social programs. And as we underfund other institutions, they perform worse and worse, making us rely more and more on the military. And so the cycle goes. Rosen notes how Africa was of little concern or of, in quotes, little strategic value to the United States. Now, she didn't say this, but the DOD, the Department of Defense, did. But of course, once Al-Qaeda bombed two embassies in Africa, it got bumped up to high priority. Now, what did the U.S. military do in Africa? 
Well, the Pentagon established AFRICOM, or Africa Command, and AFRICOM did not just do combat missions against Al-Qaeda. Well, they did a lot more, a lot more expensive things. I'll list them out here. Rosa writes, The resulting range of AFRICOM activities quickly caused heartburn for those committed to viewing military power strictly through a traditional warfighting lens. Recent activities undertaken by or with the assistance of AFRICOM include, for instance, the construction of school classrooms in Chad, research on the association of sexual violence and human rights violations with physical and mental health in territories of the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, cattle vaccination in Uganda, designed to provide healthy cattle to internally displaced civilians returning to their homes, activities to combat drug trafficking through the West Africa Cooperative Security Initiative, and the construction of closed wells with solar power pumps in Senegal. Hope I'm pronouncing that country right. But it goes on. AFRICOM helped perform circumcisions. AFRICOM helped combat HIV. AFRICOM uh, did work with malaria, mosquitoes, and creating websites to give uh, information regarding different political stances. Now, none of these activities you would ever consider calling on the military to help you accomplish. Now, Brooks had a beautiful job that she undertook. She constructed a team to help sift through all the different programs that the Pentagon had, trying to decide which ones were expending the budget too much, which ones they could enhance, pass on to civilian agencies, or just can entirely. And she notes they got nowhere. The Pentagon sort of laughed at this team in a way. By not delegating certain objectives to more neutral organizations, there is a certain cost to that. The aid that comes from the DOD ceases to be neutral. So organizations like Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross or the Salvation Army, these places tend to provide relief, food, and healing in all manners and in all political environments. However, when it comes from the DOD, it takes on a distinct costume of influence, in a way. The aid becomes a instrument of war. Now, this book was published in 2016. Obviously, in 2021, we pulled out of Afghanistan, and that was a mess to watch unfold on TV. I want to know earlier the documentary I mentioned by Vice, This Is What Winning Looks Like. Um, I'm not a fan of Biden. I criticize him often. I certainly prefer him over any of the other options we had. But when we left Afghanistan, I felt he had a lot of unfair criticism and attacks towards his means of leaving. Now, we also left behind many interpreters, which have been hunted down and killed, and I believe that was a flaw. I believe there was more work we could have done to get him over here safely with visas. However, the state of Afghanistan, one that was able to be conquered in one month by the Taliban, makes a lot of sense to me after I watched that documentary. Now, that documentary came out in 2013, and just watching that and the state of things in 2013 contextualizes how they are today almost perfectly. That documentary was evergreen when uh, we pulled out of Afghanistan in 2021. If anything, I find that documentary enhances Brooke's point here. If the majority of the tasks being undertaken in that documentary were delegated to non-military organizations and institutions, they would have been done much more efficiently. The military is not trained on how to teach hygiene to a different culture. The military is not trained on the ethics and socially accepted norms of a different culture. No, the military is trained for one purpose, 
and that is to eliminate an enemy. Rosa gets into some very interesting waters here in the chapter called The Full Spectrum. She makes some comments on the justification of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And of course, there is mass debate on the justification of not just those wars, but wars throughout history, such as Vietnam, Korea, the Gulf War, etc. And her and I roughly agree. The war in Iraq was a terrible, terrible mistake, while the war in Afghanistan was quite understandable. However, I get accused often of being a warmonger. It's not a good thing to be accused of. But I try to take a very practical approach to geopolitics. I will also concede, right off the bat, that the typical fashion that America handles its armed conflicts is quite insane. And the typical amount of fuck-ups is too large for a nation with a military budget that surpasses the next 10 countries combined. You simply are held to a higher standard at that point. I concede this only to say that if there is a nation that has a dictator or an autocracy that is committing mass human rights violations, then a country that has the capacity to intervene should intervene. Of course, diplomatically at first. But if not diplomatically, because I take a utilitarian approach, I find that all lives lost due to that uh, regime are sort of, in a weird way, that blood is on your hands for not intervening. It's like when your parents taught you that if you see someone getting bullied at school and you do not step in, you might as well be bullying the kid. You not stepping in is part of the problem. By not intervening in these human rights violations, either diplomatically or with force, we allow them to go on. By not intervening, we set a precedent to other countries by saying, you will be in the clear as long as you don't have oil or something else in our interests. You can commit human rights violations en masse and not have to worry about our intervention. This is why I find it quite baffling that a majority of the neocons today want to not intervene at all in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. I've said it a million times, I'll say it again. If you don't stop Putin in his tracks, what makes you think he's going to stop with Ukraine? He won't. It's as if Hitler invaded Poland and everyone said, well, it's just Poland. Maybe they needed some conquering. Who are we to involve ourselves in their business? They're on the other side of the world. What should we have to do about that? It's not our problem. Let it sort out itself. Translating this to the Iraq war, I do believe there is something to be done about Saddam Hussein. Obviously, he did not have weapons of mass destruction. A full-fledged invasion certainly wasn't necessary. And if you did do a full-fledged invasion, which we did, our exit strategy and our state that we left things in there should have been infinitely different. And once a area is secured by the U.S. military, it makes sense to take some brave volunteers or people that work for uh, non-government organizations or even government organizations that are not explicitly military and incorporate them into the state building and have that not be dictated by the military, rather have the military provide security for them while they do their work. What I'm saying is an invasion of Iraq could have been done, and it could have been done less ugly, with infinitely less lives lost. I'm not a general, I'm not part of the military, but I do believe our handling of that situation was rather elementary-ish. Rosa makes a comment in the book here, 
And I genuinely wrestled with it, because it rubs up against everything I just said in the past three minutes. I'll read it here. It should be no surprise if we often fail to achieve our idealistic goals. After all, building a culture that respects human rights, democracy, and the rule of law takes time. Our own imperfect form of democracy, rife as it still is with injustice and corruption, took us more than two centuries to build, though we stood on the shoulders of those who drafted the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights. So why should we imagine that durable change could come any faster in societies that start with far less? Less wealth, less education, less tradition of democratic government, human rights, or peaceful change. Simple failure to achieve our loftiest goals could be excused, but if our efforts to help only cause more harm, it's inexcusable. Rosa's similar utilitarian philosophy that I share is shining here. If you want to increase the net well-being of as many people as possible, and your intervention causes more harm and more chaos and more destruction, and then leaves nothing but a wasteland behind, well, you might as well have been the one to instigate human rights violations in the first place. However, Rosa does note the value of intention. Many of y'all probably remember my argument with Charlie Kirk over the value of intention. Idealism matters, and why you invade a country, and your goals for that invasion matter infinitely. If you invade a country to add to your empire, and to expand your reaches in your dominion, well then, yeah, that is clearly unacceptable, especially if it was not willing to be invaded. But if you invade to relieve them of a pain, or a force that is committing human rights violations, I find that quite necessary. Please do not hear me say that I sign off on all previous U.S. invasions. I believe if I was alive in the time of the Vietnam War, I would be protesting it as well. That was simply a war that needed much more diplomacy and much more negotiating prior to an invasion. It also needed a different way of handling the conflict. From a boots-on-the-ground perspective, soldiers simply were not prepared for that war. Nor should we have thrown image-bearing soldiers at hills and plains and fields that held no value to our operations there. The moral conflictions of that war made perfect sense to me. However, these three conflicts, Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, along with many others, they're all in the past. And I don't want to spend too much time here because there's no way for me to say we would have done it better. And there's no way for me to prove that my ideas are true. They're just mere speculations. Returning to the book, with ideas like AFRICOM and the justification of certain wars, there is no excuse for how we have been handling these wars. A final note in this chapter, Rosa notes an individual named Robert Gates, and he says, Consider that this year's budget for the Department of Defense, not counting operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, is nearly half a trillion dollars, while the total foreign affairs budget request for the State Department is only $36 billion. There are only about 6,600 professional foreign service officers. That's less than the manning for one aircraft carrier strike group. Gates was blunt in his analysis. The gutting of America's soft power institutions has led the Defense Department to take on many of these burdens that might have been assumed by civilian agencies in the past. America wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to have a military that's worth trillions and trillions of taxpayer dollars. But it also wants to be lazy. It wants to only intervene when there's explicit benefit for us. And it certainly doesn't want to confront any of its allies. Even if one of its allies are contributing or just outright performing human rights violations themselves. 
The size and the budget of the U.S. military is simply too asymmetrical for its presence and its effect in the world. The next chapter is titled The Secret War. In this chapter, Rosa talks about things that today might be called conspiracy theories, but at the time of writing, these are just the questions and statements that can be attributed to the DoD and the military. One point I find particularly interesting is that of private contractors. When you Google the uh, amount of influence and participation that private businesses and contractors have in military operations, you'll be blown away. Brooks writes, During the first Gulf War, fewer than 10,000 civilian contractors accompanied some 500,000 military personnel. I already personally think that's quite a lot. But then she writes, during the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, contractors outnumbered U.S. troops, and they paid heavily. Some estimates suggest that more contractors than troops were killed in those wars. Prior to that, Brooks wrote, Just to add to the blurriness and complexity, many of the participants in America's secret war are neither military personnel nor CIA paramilitary officers, but private contractors. And the presence of contractors in the mix makes it even harder to decide if what we're looking at is a war or something else, and makes it difficult to know how to apply the law of armed conflict. Is a contractor who provides intelligence analysis that supports targeting decisions a combatant, a civilian participating in hostilities? Can he or she be lawfully targeted by U.S. adversaries? What rights and duties do contractors have? We don't have a Bible to tell us how to handle these questions. These are new ideas. And it's not that private contractors don't necessarily have to play a role, but we need to be more clear about their role and the guardrails of it. I personally am rather against the idea. I think war needs to be its own separate sphere, separate from civilian life. And when you add profit incentives to conflict, then it allows a lot of bad faith actors and greedy corporations to want to instigate conflict because it simply means more profit. Follow the stock prices of Lockheed Martin, Bell, Raytheon, during Iraq and Afghanistan, during the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and now during the heightened Israel-Palestine conflicts. They are living quite nice over there at those companies. If a company benefits off carnage and war and the slaughtering of innocents, then I believe we have a problem. I'm only 23 and I don't know much about how these companies operate on a ground level. But I've always been quite confused how the military, with its trillions and trillions of dollars, doesn't take the rights of these weapons, take the rights of the aircraft, of the Humvees, of the guns, and construct them themselves. Right? This confuses me immensely. And you wonder about the budget of the military. If the military is buying from private organizations and companies, then if I'm one of the sellers in those companies, I might as well reason, well, I'm selling to the U.S. military, and the U.S. military wants this. I can kind of name my own price, can't I? Is the U.S. military going to say they can't afford it? No, of course not. I find it rather strange that in this day and age, you can even have a career in building weapons of mass destruction. Of course, someone needs to build them for the U.S. military, but these people don't work for the U.S. military. They wake up in the morning in their bed, kiss their wife and kids, get in a car, drive 20 minutes into the city, clock in, and then assemble Tomahawk cruise missiles. That is baffling to me. If you don't believe me, 
spend some time on Raytheon's website. I was just on there. And it's so uncanny how they advertise weapons. It's so strange. They say, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. And also, here's our new Block 4 Tomahawk cruise missile. It can loiter in the air for hours, it can change targets, it can even strike in heavily defended airspaces. Sounds like something that belongs in the military. Yet, it's a civilian organization. It's traded on the open market. This also means that Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Bell, they can deal to whoever's going to cut the biggest check. This can include America's enemies. Now, they certainly probably don't want to do this, especially if the government found out about this. But what do we know about under-the-table deals, right? Are we not confused how many of these countries are getting American weapons? Are we not confused on the implications if that country ceases to be our ally? More so, what do you do with the company that sold those weapons to that country? I mean, you can't hold them entirely accountable. But should there not always be an investigation into the company to see how much information they knew about the country's intent of purchasing the weapons? A final note, I think there should be incentives for people to solve problems. A lot of people complained about various drug companies benefiting off COVID, but for companies that came up with vaccines or developed solutions, new profits are the natural conclusion of that act. Create a product or a service that satiates a demand, and there will be money involved. And that makes perfect sense to me. For the individual or the institution that finds the cure of cancer, I will not be surprised when that person has a lot of money. However, war is different. It's not like these companies are inventing something that the government couldn't. Their products don't save, they kill. And they kill more and more effectively at a larger and larger scale. A vaccine or a solution to tsunamis or hurricanes or a disease is something that can be applied universally to all countries. Weapons of war contain obvious hidden messages whenever you sell them to one person or a country and not another. Brooks then moves to the next chapter called Future Warfare, which the title tells you everything you need to know about it. However, these ideas of future warfare might have been futuristic in 2016 when this book was published, but today they're all too real. And here Rosa gets into the different questions regarding ethics, philosophy, and just how we view war in general from a humanities point of view. Rosa begins by writing, We assume that war involves physical violence. For this reason, military recruitment and training still emphasize physical strength and fitness. But today's military is also preparing for a possible future in which battles take place mainly in cyberspace, and winning or losing may have little to do with threats of life, limb, or property. Cyber battles will most likely be about information and control. Who will have access to sensitive health, personal, and financial information about individuals? Individuals who may, in some cases, make key individuals vulnerable to blackmail. Who will be able to control the machinery of daily life? The servers relied upon by the Pentagon and the New York Stock Exchange. The computers that keep our cars brakes from activating at the wrong time. The software that runs our household computers. I always find it strange when I see militaries today giving out promotional propaganda where they emphasize ground forces. I believe with the advent of the supersonic modern-day fighter jet, war became a very different thing. The strength and size of a country's ground force 
is very irrelevant to an F-22 Raptor. If you're curious, do some research on just how powerful an American fighter jet is. They are undetectable on radar. They fly faster than the speed of sound. They have the capacity to carry nuclear weapons. And that is a particular note because nuclear weapons have typically always been allocated to bombers. And bombers are usually not able to fly at supersonic speeds. But now we've been able to put the most powerful weapons on supersonic aircraft. Right? These aircraft can fly around the world in no time, right? An F-22 Raptor can fly around the entire equator in under 17 hours. And this is prior to the discussion on cyber warfare, right? Just now, the idea of warfare is very different with modern fighter planes. I will note, I am always stunned when I see the videos of trench warfare in Russia and Ukraine. That is quite the spectacle. Because if you were to ask me what war would look like today, well, I kind of just enumerated on it. Very small-scale operations, no more masses of ground forces colliding with other countries' masses, and the conflict in Ukraine is just spitting that all back out at me. However, I do view the conflict in Ukraine and the conflict now, or the heightened conflict, it's always been a conflict, but the heightening of the conflict in Israel and Palestine as specific to the land itself, right? I believe wars between other countries would be less about land and more about ideologies. However, Ukraine is land that Putin believes explicitly belongs to Russia and so wants to tangibly own the land. I say that, but then at the same time, you take a look at the land, and he is completely scorching it. And the more I meditate on these ideas, the more I'm realizing how little I truly know about the minds and the intentions of various countries in conflict. It appears every war is becoming more and more blurry with its meaning and its goals. Like Ukraine, Palestine, and uh, Israel, their conflict is specific to land specific to the city of Jerusalem. I believe that plays a major role in the discussion over cyber warfare and the future of warfare and how warfare looks. But I still do believe it's weird that we are developing new pieces of artillery, different howitzers, different tanks. It's strange because I believe anything a howitzer or a tank could accomplish, an airplane could accomplish much quicker. The way we handled Afghanistan was very different from any other war. Rather than just focusing on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda's strong points, we rather focused on their leaders, implementing drones to do targeted individualized killings. Now, Rosa notes that these individual killings can be kind of uncanny and precarious in ethical position. However, they are certainly better than indiscriminate killings. I am always perplexed thinking of how all countries, Japan, Britain, Germany, and America, in World War II, believed the best course of action was to just firebomb civilian cities. That is so wild to me. Hundreds of thousands of civilians, men, women, and children, were just smoldered and slaughtered in Dresden, in Britain, in Tokyo. And all of this really got countries nowhere. No country seemed to relent, although their morale might have dropped. They never ceased fighting because of this. Obviously, the droppings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki are quite different. That is a million-hour-long podcast in itself. 
But when it comes to technology in warfare, I am quite optimistic. I view it sort of as technology increasing in the medical sphere. I believe things get easier. I believe there's less room for error. And I believe tasks are easily optimized. It is quite a relief that during World War II, hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands would die every day. But in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was a tragedy for 10 soldiers to die in a month. How we wage conflict and how we navigate these spheres changes how many people die, how many people need to die, even on the opposing side. We didn't need to firebomb Baghdad or Fallujah. No, we needed to carry out targeted strikes. And as AI and technology increases, these will be made much cleaner and will probably need to be executed less frequently. Rosa writes regarding AI, Computers may be far better than human beings at complying with international humanitarian law. After all, we humans are fragile and panicky creatures, easily flustered by the fog of war. Our eyes face only one direction. Our ears only register certain frequencies. Our brains process only so much information at a given time. Loud noises make us jump, and fear floods our bodies with powerful chemicals that can temporarily distort our perception and judgment. As a result, we make mistakes in war, and we make them all the time. We misjudge distances. We forget instructions, we misconstrue gestures, we mistake cameras for weapons, shepherds for soldiers, friends for enemies, schools from barracks, and wedding parties for terrorist convoys. She later writes, Computers aren't perfect, but they're a good deal less flawed than those of us cursed with organic circuitry. And of course, this all ends up being a Unitarian philosophy game, right? Will there ever be a time when we are morally obligated to use robots instead of humans to wage our wars. There's one area I can think where this was implemented at least 20 years ago, and that is with EOD bots, or Explosive Ordnance Disposal Bots. We used to get a guy in a 100-pound suit and have him walk up to a bomb and attempt to disarm it. Okay, I think people still do this, but we have found a way to make it much more easy and less dangerous by sending a robot with little claws to go and disarm the bomb. Now, if we had that technology and still decided to send humans in when the technology could have been implemented, well, I believe morally that is wrong. All steps should be taken to preserve human life, even enemy human life. And just like bombs, I believe if you need to clear a house or clear a street of enemies, I believe that should be done with robots, if available, rather than sending humans there. And there's very obvious caveats to this. There needs to be immense testing and immense insurance that these robots are seamless in their identification of enemies and civilians. I believe Hollywood and George Orwell make this seem to be a very scary and dangerous time. Now, I'm very concerned with the implications of AI on our modern society, but I'm also embracing it because there's obvious benefits, especially in the field of medicine. But the military is also one of those fields where I'm more optimistic than I am scared. And closing this section on future warfare, uh, Rosa touches on an interesting topic of non-lethal weapons. I'm going to read here. If we fought a war with weapons that did no permanent physical harm to our enemies, would they still be weapons? Would it still be a war? 
The advent of cyber war forces us to ask this question, but similar questions also arise when we consider advances in non-lethal weapons. The military is already experimenting with a number of technologies that can incapacitate or control enemies without causing injury or death. For instance, there's the active denial technology, which can shoot a focus beam of radio frequency millimeter waves at a frequency of 95 gigahertz toward a specific area. Traveling at the speed of light, the millimeter wave directed energy engages the subject, penetrating the skin to a depth of only about 1 64th of an inch, or the equivalent of three sheets of paper, asserts the Defense Department fact sheet. Three painful sheets of paper. Anyone caught in the beam will feel a sudden searing heat all over his or her body, making further movement impossible. One's natural instinct will be to move out of range. Once out of the beam, the sensation of unbearable heat immediately ceases, with no permanent ill effects, not even a bruise or a burn. Later she writes, Similarly, improved flashbang grenades can temporarily disorient adversaries, using light and sound to create transient blindness and deafness. The new flashbang grenades can be thrown by hand, and another variant can be fired through existing mortar tubes from a distance of up to a kilometer. In the future, these non-lethal mortar rounds may also paint those caught near detonations with infrared or ultraviolet ink, invisible to the naked eye but easily detected by U.S. troops trying to track enemies escaping through crowded city streets. Other emerging technologies fire lasers that cause temporary blindness, or high-powered radio waves that can cause vehicle engines to stall. Lastly, she writes, But here, too, the evolution and expansion of warfare raises distinctly Orwellian possibilities. Imagine the development of non-lethal DNA-linked bioweapons that cause hallucinations or crippling schizophrenia symptoms aimed at political, economic, or military leaders, for instance, or imagine linking non-lethal weapons to individualization technologies and distant warfare technologies in other ways, a world in which swarms of miniaturized drones with facial recognition software can seek out and incapacitate specific individuals in a crowd will be a world in which suicide bombers can be stopped in their tracks, but also a world in which repressive governments can exercise near-total control over dissenters. It'll be a world in which lines between the worlds of war and peace will no longer exist. It'll be a brave new world, for sure. Moving on, Rosa brings up a brilliant discussion over the purpose of an army. She wants to note that America has thousands of troops in hundreds of different countries all over the world. And asks the question, why? She writes, the Iraq war is over. The war in Afghanistan is winding down, and Washington's budget cutters are sharpening their knives. In a world of cyber operations, pirates, humanitarian missions, and high-tech unmanned aerial vehicles, the army is struggling to define and defend its role and mission. Why should the United States Army keep roughly 12,000 soldiers stationed in peacetime Kuwait? And more broadly, why does a nation so seemingly determined to avoid another land war need a large standing army, with troops deployed all over the world. Won't these conflicts of the future be better suited to the Navy and Air Force, with their drones and computers and other technologically advanced toys, than the Army's 540,000 grunts, with their tanks, rucksacks, and muddy boots? America, like many other nations in the past, is an empire, and it stretches far past the American borders. We have embassies in hundreds of countries, and soldiers placed all over the world. I find this to be acceptable only up to a certain point, and at that point I begin to ask questions. 
if a country has a democratic government and is well-standing and wants you as soldiers there, I see no problem with that. But what about Somalia, where there is no government, where there is no centralized authority, rather just hundreds of warlords competing for land and loot? Like I said, I believe intervention to be necessary in a place like Somalia. However, what happens after intervention has been conducted? Are we the ones that are authorized to create a new state there? Why not the UK? Why not North Korea? Or Russia? Or South Africa? Why are we the ones to construct a new state there? Should there be a new state? Many people would ask me if there should be a new state there. I think the obvious answer is yes. As long as people are getting born there, and they're being born into a starving country full of warlords and famine, yes, something clearly needs to change. And I believe people put themselves on this moral high ground by thinking they're better for not wanting to intervene and criticizing the U.S. military-industrial complex. I argue you can criticize the U.S. military and how it has intervened in conflicts in the past. And those interventions can have a track record of being rather poor. I don't believe the solution is less intervention, but better intervention. Think of free speech. The answer to bad speech isn't to restrict speech, rather drown it out in good speech. I assume there's no rules for this on the global scale. I think we, and by we I mean humanity, has all gotten together and just agreed to go along with the country with the most money and the most power, that being America, kind of gets to write the rules as it goes. This is one of the reasons I was particularly allergic to Trump, was because he would consistently laugh and degrade coalitions of countries, such as the EU, NATO, and even NAFTA, to a certain degree. And these are collections of countries attempting to create a global system that is ethical, moral, and not ambiguous, and with little room for bad actors to work. It's almost a democracy on a global scale. Avoiding confrontation with any globalist conspiracy theorists, I will say, when we are entering the age of such robust and alien technology, and the borders, the physical borders on countries, are becoming less and less relevant, and companies such as Walmart, Exxon, and Amazon hold more sway than most countries do, creating a global system on how to navigate conflicts, economics, and politics is necessary for a country to not get left behind in the future. And so the web of U.S. military personnel across many countries might be permissible if it wasn't so confusing. So the term uh, Brooks gives us is RAF, or Regionally Aligned Forces. Rosa writes, Sitting in Lermont's windowless Pentagon office one afternoon after my Kuwait trip, I explained that even after weeks of research and interviews, I'm still having trouble getting a handle on what RAF is and what it isn't. Everyone I speak to seems to have a different understanding of RAF, I tell Lermont. Some see it as an overdue transformation of the whole army. Some see it as a tool of imperialist intervention. And others see it, in the words of one former Pentagon official, as another giant army nothing burger. Also, I tell Lermont, no one seems able to offer clarity on which army units are regionally aligned, which are not, and which are slated to be regionally aligned in the future. As has been the consistent theme in this book and this podcast, 
the military is not allowed to have trillions and trillions of dollars and leave these ideas, right, even ones that extend to other countries and impact the whole globe, like soldiers stationed out of our borders, aren't allowed to be poorly defined. We need to have a more robust dictionary on all of these ideas. Moving on, Rosa also talks about putting war in a box, how we define it. She opened the book with this idea, and here she elaborates on it much deeper. German military strategist Karl von Clausewitz saw war as nothing but a duel on an extensive scale, an act of violence intended to compel our opponents to fulfill our will. To this he famously added, War is nothing more than the continuation of politics by other means. For political aims are the end, and war is the means, and the means can never be conceived without the end. Even the laws we make around war, which sounds strange, right? Rules around how to wage a war. In World War I, it was almost illegal to use a shotgun in the trenches. And uh, the Pope at one point, as Rosa notes, um, banned crossbows, saying they are unholy to be used against people especially Christians. Rather, I view these as nothing but humans trying to contain the uncontainable. Klaus wished might be right. War might just be for political aims, but how it goes about getting those political aims, it doesn't care to scorch bodies, to demolish cities, to radiate populations, or torture people. War is inherently anti-human, and setting rules around that, though I agree with the rules, though I support making more rules, is rather weird. Rosa writes, Oddly, even the modern law of war, more formally known as the International Law of Armed Conflict, or LOAC, does not offer a precise definition of armed conflict. For example, the Geneva Conventions apply their terms to, in quote, all cases of declared war or of any other armed conflict, end quote. But how much violence equals an armed conflict for legal purposes no one's entirely sure. As two represented European legal scholars noted in a 2009 article in the International Review of the Red Cross, this is one of the glaring gaps in the law of armed conflict, a gap that concerns its very foundation, namely the question of the definition of war, or rather armed conflict. I mentioned in the beginning how different societies and cultures handled war in the past. I'm going to read these two paragraphs here. These talk about uh, Liberian warriors, Zulu warriors, and Native American groups. Many Native American groups, including the Cheyenne and the Choctaw, Shawnee and the Iroquois, and the Tentons, divided authority between peace chiefs and war chiefs. Among the Cheyenne, for instance, peace chiefs led the nation's ten or so bands, supervised their trade, and adjudicated disputes. When war threatened, they gave control of the nation to war chiefs, who planned strategy and tactics and led attacks. When the war ended, War chiefs handed control back to the peace chiefs, the locus of authority, and whether power was hereditary, in the case of many tribes' peace chiefs, or meritocratically earned, as was often in the case among war chiefs, thus depended entirely on the ability of a tribe to distinguish readily between peacetime and wartime. Rosa continues, In the 19th century Liberia, warriors wore special masks during raids, and war was prohibited while bush school was in session for boys and girls. Among the Zulu in southern Africa, conflict prior to the early 19th century military innovations of Shaka Zulu was similarly ritualized. Disputes between tribes were settled through combat, on a mutually agreed-upon day and time. Each tribe's warriors would draw up 
in lines at a distance of about 100 yards apart. Behind the line stood the remaining members of each tribe. Chosen warriors would advance to within 50 yards of each other and shout insults before opening the battle by hurling their spears. Brooks includes these examples and many, many more. This goes on for, uh, for a very long time um, because there's a distinct acknowledgement of these groups of people between the difference of war and peace. And where our military is conducting so many civilian jobs, the line is getting really blurry, and technology is not helping. She closes the chapter by writing, Don't imagine that only ancient or exotic societies engage in peculiar rituals designed to mark the boundaries between war and peace. Warrior and ordinary human. We modern Americans have such rituals too. We're simply so accustomed to our own rituals that we rarely recognize them as such. Think of military boot camp, or the first week of new cadets at West Point. New recruits and cadets are separated from their families. Their civilian clothing is packed away and replaced with uniforms. Their hair is shorn in a kind of ritual disfigurement. Literally stripped of their old identities, they go through a series of initiation rites remarkably similar to those used by a thousand different societies throughout history. They are deliberately disoriented. They are yelled at and subjected to ritualized insults. Their sleep patterns are disrupted. They miss meals. They are forced to exercise to the point of exhaustion. They submit to detailed and often arbitrary new rules. They learn a new language. You wear a cover, not a hat, and do PT, not exercise. You eat in the DFAC, or the chow hall, not the cafeteria. Special items of clothing gain near talismanic properties. The recruit must learn to walk differently and hold himself differently. At West Point, new cadets or plebes must memorize and be prepared to recite bits of arcane lore, little of which serves any purpose beyond emphasizing group membership and the plebe's subordinate status. To the question, how many lights in Kellum Hall? The cadet must answer, 340. To the query, how is the cow? The cadet must respond, she walks, she talks, she's full of shock. The lacteal fluid extracted from the female of the bovine species is highly prolific to the nth degree. I found this part very convincing and very interesting by Brooks. I'm, I'm really grateful she put this in the book. Much of what goes into making our modern-day soldiers made perfect sense to me. I mean, boot camp made a lot of sense. You want your soldiers to be fit. You want them to be able to endure hardship. There might be times when their sleep is disrupted. They might have to miss meals. They might have to run to the point of exhaustion. Those are all very realistic expectations for conflict. And I find the language that Rosa talks about, and the locations, and the uniforms, and the look, to be our attempt to keep war separate from civilian life. And oh, how we are failing at that. These points lead directly into the next chapter of Taming War. And Taming War is also very difficult. It coincides exactly with putting war in a box and trying to define it. Like I said, People are trying to contain the uncontainable, to humanize the explicitly anti-human. Another way we've attempted to put war in a box is with the Libra Code. Brooks writes the history. Military necessity admits of all direct destruction of life or limb of armed enemies, and of other persons whose destruction is incidentally unavoidable in the armed contest of the war. As a result, the violence of war must be carefully circumscribed. Peace is the normal condition. War is the exception. What's more, he insisted, even in wartime there must be clear rules and limits for men who take up arms against one another in public war do not cease on this account to be moral beings, responsible to one another and to God. 
His code thus laid out detailed rules for the treatment of civilians, prisoners, and the wounded during war and occupation. Torture and the infliction of suffering for the sake of suffering must be considered always impermissible, and the private citizen must be spared in person, property, and honor. Now, I personally support the Geneva Conventions. I support the Libra Code. However, I find it rather uncanny that we have these restrictions, especially since most bad faith actors in the world refuse to follow them. And I think this is a good litmus test to deciding who is the more moral agent in a conflict. For example, uh, someone like Sam Harris would ask you to consider the case of human shields in conflict. What side is deterred by human shields? And what side couldn't care less if they come across human shields? And I've always thought about this. If Russia invaded California, for example, how wild would it be for American soldiers to take California natives as human shields? Would that stop the Russians from shooting? Would that stop a firefight in its tracks? Well, when we're in another country and a Taliban soldier or an ISIS soldier takes an Iraqi or an Afghan child as a human shield, we will stop a whole operation. We will hesitate to infiltrate buildings if we know there's human shields in there. Hell, even if there's just civilians that aren't being used as human shields, we will take drastic measures to avoid inflicting those casualties. I want to make some comments regarding my position and my outlook on U.S. intervention and the reputation of the United States military in armed conflict. I don't believe we have a very good track record, and I believe there's been many times when the United States has intervened in a country's conflict and has dropped the ball and has caused more harm than good. As I mentioned, the documentary This Is What Winning Looks Like shows how our situation in Afghanistan was rather hopeless. However, how do you react after 9-11? Well, you must find the people responsible for that. And when you come to find the people responsible, also lead a culture that completely suppresses women and their autonomy, and it completely suppresses intellectual growth. It suppresses apostasy. And it doesn't just suppress these things. It murders dissenters. If a woman without her niqab or her burqa or in school gets battery acid thrown in her eyes, or if a girl doesn't want to marry, if a 14-year-old if girl doesn't want to marry the 40-year-old prince that her family designated for her, she might get her hands cut off. So what do you do when you find a culture that believes that? I believe intervention is not only necessary, but lack of intervention makes you an immoral character. Joe Rogan on a podcast when confronted with this point asked, Oh, so you just think America is the world's policeman? You think America always gets things right? So America's perfect, hmm? Well, no. America does not always get things right. America is very far from perfect. It is more imperfect than it is perfect. But as the country with the most power and the most influence, I believe you are responsible to intervene in cases of injustice or human rights violations. Once one can concede that there is an objective moral order, or at least a moral order that's ends are objective, right? Maybe things get blurry in the middle regarding a code of morality. But we can all agree that if a woman wants to go to school, she should go to school. 
And if she doesn't want to marry a 40-year-old, she has that right. But we live in an age where people will look at you and say you're an intellectual colonizer, that you're imposing your beliefs upon theirs, and that's their culture. We need to be able to admit that some cultures are better than others, right? If your culture involves cutting off someone's hand because they stole, your culture is inferior to Western culture. Now, Western culture shrugs at tax breaks for the rich. Western culture shrugs at disproportionate amounts of minorities in prison. Western culture might be blind to effective education. But that doesn't mean Western culture is then worse than the culture of the Taliban or of North Korea or of the communist regime in China. We can objectively say America is better. We can even go further and say Switzerland or Norway is better. But Switzerland and Norway don't have the resources or the size or the GDP to confront these problems. No doubt they probably want to. America has the capacity to intervene, and it does it poorly at times, but other times it doesn't. Our intervention in Syria and our attempt to restrict Gaddafi was a good attempt. We weren't as successful as we could have been, but it's because we were rather restrictive in our force. We only conducted NATO airstrikes. No ground forces ever entered Syria. So Gaddafi was able to just hide away and still carry out his war. And again, I'll admit, America has had a poor rubric of intervention. Right? We haven't intervened with North Korea as much as we should. We have not been nearly as harsh on Russia as we probably should. And we have so much purchasing from China that we have yet to be able to confront their regime. And it gets worse. When you look at Africa and all of the misery and carnage that has gone on there, we left Somalia after the Black Hawk Down incident and never returned, leaving that place in shambles. We did nothing during the Rwandan genocide. We didn't seem to care any less when Joseph Kony and the LRA were running rampant. Yeah, our intervention has been miserable in Africa. And no doubt Africa would look a lot different if we have intervened and if we intervene successfully. Remembering what we've learned so far from Rosa Brooks' book, yes, if we intervene with only the military, and if we instructed the military to be in charge of nation-building, and state-building, and government-building, and institution-building, yes, our intervention would be miserable. And that's been roughly the rubric we've been using. So of course our history is terrible with intervention. But the answer isn't less intervention. It isn't less correcting. It's better correcting. It's more humane intervention. It's less profit-making or concerns about profit and more concerns about human lives and human dignity. If you're an individual and you see someone drowning in a pond and you walk by them, you're a terrible person. No, the average person will go and help that person. If you're a city and the city next to you is on fire and you have the fire engines to spare at your disposal, you send them over. And if you don't, you're a bad city. When the state next to you gets hit by a hurricane, and your state has the resources and the capacity to help, your state will help. The reason I'm saying these things is to show you that the intervention scales up, even when you get more people. But apparently our intervention stops when we result to our made-up borders. Now, I'm not anti-border, I don't want to see borders gone. I think they're very useful. 
I think they're useful for defending and marking a state's territory. But the human lives outside of your border don't have less dignity. You guys might recall from episode three of this podcast where I covered Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. I love Yuval, and I love that he talks about the concept of borders and how we other people that are outside of our borders for no good reason. I've been debating with myself and others over the value of tribalism, if tribalism to any extent is useful. And I think to a degree it is, at least on a large scale with a nation. American lives should care about other American lives. And Americans should probably, I'm very open to this changing, Americans should care more about other Americans than, say, Canadians. However, what is a tolerable amount of neglect we can give to other countries? You guys might think I'm rambling on here. I've been going here for a couple minutes. But I say this because I meet people, sane and well-intentioned people, who will look at me in the eyes and say we have no business doing anything in any other country other than our own. It seems these people fail to recognize that America would not exist if it was not for France intervening in the Revolutionary War. It was not just a bunch of unorganized colonists motivated by the idea of being an individual nation that was able to conquer the greatest empire in the world at the time. No, France played a major role and a decisive role in the Revolutionary War. But hey, they shouldn't be the world's policemen, right? If you have the capacity to help, if you have the resources to help, you help regardless of borders. And I think people are generally okay with this, but draw the line at military intervention. But what if military intervention is the best way to help? You can drop as much food as you want in Somalia, but as long as there's no restrictions on who gets that food, and if there's no protection for people who get that food, warlords will keep grabbing it up and selling it for crazy prices and maintaining an artificial famine. If you want babies to stop dying in Somalia, and if you want people to get fed, you have to do something about the warlords. Of course, you also need a stable government there. But you don't get to get a government and then just ignore the warlords. Military intervention is necessary if Somalia wants to enter the modern age. We can criticize police and still appreciate the work that police officers do. We can criticize our government and our institutions and still want to see them succeed and do well. And we can criticize our history of intervention and still want to intervene effectively and helpfully. Returning back to the book, Brooks notes the United Nations Charter, which was drafted after World War II. She writes, Today, some seven decades on from that increasingly unimaginable time, legal commentators and international relations experts still refer frequently to Chapter 1 of the United Nations Charter, which rather dryly declares that the UN's purpose is to maintain international peace and security. But we refer less often to the Charter's preamble with its poignant opening lines. We, the people of the United Nations, are determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. The UN and this collection of countries was able to realize this. Yet, Americans still seem hesitant to contribute to this philosophy. No doubt throughout the life of this podcast, 
and in my writing life, I will contribute heavily to this idea. Returning back to the book, Rosa then covers a lot of other topics that she introduced the ideas of earlier in the book, but gives a more robust unpacking and presentation of. These include a system of judging when a country should intervene in another country's struggles, the definitions of various terms like counterinsurgency, enemy combatant, peace and war, and if those really are binaries. Brooks ends the book by kind of giving us a brief amount of hope. No doubt the hope seems rather asymmetrical when compared to the delusional and uncertain identity of our military-industrial complex. Brooks writes, If the root of our current problems is a category mistake, the way to remedy these problems is to urge politicians, policymakers, military leaders, and judges to recognize that counterterrorism should not truly be conceived of as a war any more than the war on drugs or the war on poverty led us to apply the law of armed conflict to those efforts. Similarly, this argument would suggest that we should stop viewing cyber threats, economic threats, and a dozen other threats through the lens of war and return to our pre-9-11 understanding of the world. In the final bits of this book, I tend to actually depart from Brooks and her ideas. Brooks takes a much more progressive and liberal view than I typically would. I believe as long as terrorism and human rights violations are prevalent and a cancer in the world, then a strong nation and the world's leading nation, like America, must maintain a strong and robust military. No doubt we could trim our budget in half and still be the best. We could trim our budget by 80% and still be the best. Rosa goes as far as suggesting that a military should be drafted upon during its time of need and then disbanded afterwards. Now again, we have about 1.4 million active service members and we're running out of jobs to give them. So we're giving them jobs that would be better in the hands of civilian agencies. Like I mentioned earlier, we can critique the military and want to change the military rather than disband the military. I do agree when Rosa writes, Paradoxical as it may seem, the best route to upholding human rights and the rule of law lies in accepting that some degree of global violence, conflict, and coercion is likely to remain the norm, not the exception. The best route to upholding human rights and the rule of law lies in recognizing that war and peace are not binary opposites, but lie along a continuum. This is our best option. We can accept the world as it is, but change the categories we use to make sense of it, and develop new rules and institutions to manage the paradoxes of perpetual war. One of the more tangible things we can do to help our situation, and with our overly funded and overly complex military, is to start bringing more attention to civilian agencies, and attempting to give them the recognition they deserve, and the jobs they deserve. We must vote for politicians that move our agencies to a much more funded level, a level that was more pre-Cold War, before the military started getting all the funding. Brooks notes that politics these days is mostly involving lawyers, and most politicians happen to be lawyers. This should be a very telling sign. Robert Reich does a brilliant documentary called Inequality for All, where he also notes that most CEOs today are lawyers. Instead of the CEO of Toyota or Honda or General Electric having degrees from MIT or a technical school, they rather come from Harvard Law School or Yale Law School. 
Most CEOs are lawyers rather than having actual degrees or expertise in the field of the company they own. Regarding politics, Rosa writes, More than half of U.S. senators hold law degrees, along with more than a third of the House of Representatives, the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Homeland Security are lawyers too. Somehow, lawyers have come to dominate Washington debates about war, and that's a shame. Legal categories should reflect a society's deepest moral beliefs. But ask a lawyer if something's a good idea, and odds are, he'll tell you instead whether he thinks it's legally permissible. Later she writes, For lawyers, the game of law is safe and rule-bound. He who hews to the law can do no wrong. Whatever is not prohibited is permitted. If indefinite detention and mass surveillance aren't clearly illegal, they must be legal. If U.S.-targeted killings are not manifestly unlawful, they must be lawful. And if they're lawful, they needn't keep us up at night, dreaming of dead and broken bodies. This is painful to think about because, as I mentioned, I've been really reflecting on how lawyers have invaded the economic world and how lawyers are often the reason that there is so much injustice and neglect among small businesses and mass corporations in the U.S. economy. There's a lot more to unpack regarding that subject. Brooks did a brilliant job with this book. I loved this book. I've read it twice now. I believe everyone who wants to contribute to the discussion regarding America, its military, and our intervention in other countries needs to read it. I've been listening to Brooks a lot on other people's podcasts. She's still quite brilliant. I don't think I align with her nearly on much, but her writing at this time is just amazing. And she also wrote a book on policing, and I'm really interested in reading that. I doubt I truly align with her on that as well, but she's an excellent writer. She does a lot of research. She's quite the academic, so I believe she'll probably present a great document there as well. I hope the discussion on this podcast has been useful to you. I hope you have been able to question or reassess your views regarding American intervention, the American military-industrial complex, the value of linguistics and language and terminology. This book deceives you. It comes off as technical and rather calculated, but it really is a work of philosophy. These are hard subjects to really grasp and define, and it requires a lot of brain power to wade through the quagmire of terms and complications. I covered probably 30 to 40% of this book, and the 60% left uncovered is just as valuable as what I covered here. She covers Guantanamo and American imprisonment of prisoners of war. She also covers drones a lot more in depth. She talks about how we prosecute crimes of war and how we uphold the laws of war against other actors. She talks about U.S. national security, the NSA, Snowden, how the U.S. government surveils its own population and the invasion of privacy. There's a lot here, and it can be quite gloomy. But let this serve as a motivator. Let this serve as an inspiration to be the change you want to see in the world. I know that sounds cheesy, but I often get accused of being a pessimist. Yet it is just these problems and these types of discussions that motivate me to want to contribute to the world more. I love this podcast. I am always grateful to do it. I am always overjoyed when someone tells me that they've been listening and gives me feedback or has a comment to leave positive or negative. This podcast really is one of my biggest sources of joy at the moment, and I have no intention on stopping. 
I would like to close with a poem by one of my favorite hip-hop artists, Propaganda, from his book, Terraform. The Cynical Imagine Bitterness keeps its eyes in the back of its head, its ears to the past, its feet in starting blocks in lieu of trigger, remembering all moments that destroyed sense of self. Mangle's taste of leftover joy, the bitter remember. The cynical are quite different. The cynical can taste the winds of change, can smell the future. What if its fragrance is foul or flower, sage or wormwood, better or worse? Can see what we might do and what we should do. Can visualize what we could be, yet can't. At a guttural, moaning level, understand why no one else can see it. The cynical imagine, the bitter remember. I am the cynic's imagination and source of bitterness. I don't shame either. In me contains many a paradox. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all again next time.